You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Today I've got Aaron Walsh. How are you, Aaron? You okay? Yeah, good, mate. Lovely to be here on with you. Yeah, it's great to just, you know, touch base with someone um, from the other side of the world. It's uh, How is it in New Zealand at the moment? Oh, mate, we just had a magnificent autumn, actually. So I uh, spent half of it in lockdown, which is always an interesting experience. Um, but uh, we have seemed to come out the other side. So we haven't had any new cases in New Zealand for about a week. So I think we're sort of resuming slowly back to life as we used to know it, but it's been wonderful. And um, for those listeners who who don't know who you are, um, mm. Aaron, obviously you're a performance coach, but you like to go by as a mental skills coach. Yeah. Um, if you just tell us a little bit more about what, what that actually is. Yeah, so I mean, when we look at, you know, the whole thing of performance, um, you know, I've sort of always divided up into three major pillars as your physical capability, um, your skill capability and then I think the one that's sort of been left alone but probably has massive impact at the top end has been uh, your mental capability so um, your ability I think I describe it quite simply as you know the mental skills is what uh, enables you to take your capability or your potential and access that um, and deliver on that uh, under pressure in key moments and so you know the the brain is a organ has to be trained we don't naturally come out of the womb thinking well about pressure in fact everything within us from our biological design is to resist pressure and to walk away from it and so there actually has to be quite a massive adjustment um, around our thought processes and training around that enable us to reframe our relationship with pressure and then also know what to do in those moments and so I suppose in my world with high performance sport um, and business, pressure is a common companion. So your ability to uh, deal with it becomes probably a decisive factor in you having success or not having success at that level. And you've sort of, um, you've worked all over as well. You, you obviously spent a bit of time in America, um, the MLB. Mm. Um, but you've also worked at New Zealand hockey as well and New Zealand football and obviously the Chiefs now. Um, if we go to America, what, you spent quite a bit of time over there. Can you just tell us a bit about your experience? <clears throat> yeah, I ended up spending, I think we ended up spending close to 11 years over there. So originally um, didn't go over there for sports. Um, I went over there, like heaps of Kiwis, as you all know, invade the UK for OEs. And like, you know, and they just think they own the place. And um, <laughs> I thought, nah, I don't want to do that. I'll do something different. Um, so... I always, from when I was a kid, had this real fascination with the US and all things American. I don't know why, I just thought it was, it was a cool place. And um, watching as a kid Smokey and the Bandit on TV and, you know, in those big trucks and weather forecasts from LA, I remember as a kid going, it's going to be 100 degrees in LA. And I thought, oh, everyone will die. But then I didn't realise it was Fahrenheit. Um, <laughs> you know, those sort of things. It was just, I just loved America. And uh, so I thought, I'm going to go there and sort of went on a whim. And um, ended up 
uh, meeting my wife over there, and that sort of became the the long term. I reckon if I hadn't met her, it wouldn't have wouldn't have happened. And um, so that enabled me to stay in America, and then I uh, got approached to help out with an agency, out of all things. So, um, and this agency had a number of players that were, you know, key. They call them their blue chip clients, and these were guys that were obviously bringing in significant revenue for the agency because of their contracts and then their potential um, commercial value. Um, but they were all a mess. Like they were all a mess. And both on and off the field at times. And so they sort of, you know, by, I don't know, sort of almost by mistake, asked me to look after them. And so that's such a generic thing. And I discovered real quickly that these are really, really talented athletes that had physical capabilities like you wouldn't believe. But unless we got their well-being stuff right, which is their life away from sport, and also unless they were able to deliver in big, big moments, they wouldn't have a career. And yet all of them, to a man that I've worked with over the years, had never, so this is amazing to me, had never had any um, resources assigned to them or help given to them to work on that side of their performance. So you know? they, the agency told you to look after them. What did the, what was the job spec on that? Like, what did they discreetly say? This don't is what you them, should do. Don't let them get arrested. <laughs> that was <laughs> it. Don't, don't get arrested. Yeah, it was all. It was a deficit model. It was totally about like, hey, these guys. You know, some of them had uh, close to one hundred million dollar contracts, and you know, a few of them had over a hundred million dollar contracts. So it's a huge liability for the agency for them to not be on the field or for them to have issues away from the sport. So, so it's like, totally so, a self-protection thing. <laughs> so what did you do then? Did you like, would you like that acting as their personal driver, bodyguard, or was it just go around to the house or like, what, what did you do? I first started like, um, man, I did some, I probably did some stupid stuff. Eh? Like <laughs> I, I remember doing like Zig Ziglar, Googling him and getting like his things on goals. Oh, you yeah. know, like how to set goals. Yeah. So I sort of started working like, honestly at that, like, you know, what are the roles you have in your life? Well, you're an athlete, um, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a brother. Um, what do you want to get out of all of those parts of your life? So sort of just almost in a in a sort of underhanded way, just tried to help them organise their life so it would have purpose and a bit of meaning that transcended the money and transcended the fame. And, um, you know, for example, and I can tell the story later, like, there's one of the guys that was a, uh, potentially a tremendous asset to any team um but he was a little hostile um with his moods and he was fiery man like the, some of the stories are you know legendary he had a i think he had a manager up against a wall who turned blue and was on his final warning and um <laughs> and uh i remember being <clears throat> talking to him and when denver it was in denver colorado and went out for dinner and he uh ran into uh, a mutual friend and they were having dinner together and the mutual friend his job was basically to identify a young woman that were being trafficked from overseas and um <clears throat> so they went to this this uh meal and um he goes i reckon that, that our host, hostess or our waitress is is trafficked i reckon she's not here on her own you know own will and they got talking and found that was the case and got her out of there like almost like in the end of the night sort of thing. And uh, for him, his whole career changed in that moment. Like he 
he sort of like almost a light bulb went on and went, well, this baseball is not the center of my life. Uh, baseball is the vehicle that I have in my life to impact the world around me. And it sort of really shifted for him. And like, believe us or not, like he went from being a sort of a journeyman that could go anywhere um, to being a key member of a team that won three World Series. You can actually track his ERA, which is the main measure of success for a pitcher, from that moment till the end of his career. And it almost halved, went down by half, which is an amazing thing. So he was at this meal, right? And then yeah. this woman who was serving <clears throat> him, the waitress, mm. was being trafficked. How did he get her out of that situation? Did he just say, do you fancy going back to mine later on, jumping in a car and then drove off with her? And then nah, where did he nah. take so, so, <clears throat> so the guy that was with him was sort of an expert in this area. All right. And he had a whole organisation set up around called Not For Sale. And he was the one that said, all right, we can work with her. So I think they sent her a note or something and we'll be in touch tomorrow and we'll figure out how to... Oh, that's know. wicked. Yeah. So that was just sort of a, a way where you saw... I guess when I saw that, I thought, okay, there's got to be stuff that's bigger than the game. One, to first help them with their identity, which is a, a massive, massive issue. And then two, to help them answer the... Not the why in the generic sense, but also like, is there something more than throwing the ball? And can I throw the ball? And can that produce something that can affect thousands and thousands of life that is simply beyond the fan interaction or a fan experience? And I suppose that was the beginning. And then I worked out as these guys went higher and higher into the levels and I, I, I worked out that they didn't know how to handle these moments mentally. So, man, at the beginning, I was literally Googling mental skills <laughs> I'll take notes and go and try it yeah yeah for, for the guy I had on the other night he's completely self-taught as well he's, yeah, he's meant yeah, to be this ICT wizard and he's like I didn't have any training I just did it myself nah. Is that Man, I'm not against training I think training's phenomenal um but you know what I've I think there's there's massive positives and massive negatives to it the negative to me around the highly highly trained is is that do you lose your instinct? And so I, I think that's one thing I've had over the years is, and I don't know whether the training would stop me from doing this because my fear would I get quite clinical, but I still am really quite instinctive like around people and think, I don't quite know, but this is what I reckon. And, you know, and that sort of instinct and then obviously your instinct gets better with experience because, you know, pretty much now after doing this for as long as I have, you know, always there's always the odd thing that happens, but there's pretty much nothing I haven't seen. And there's pretty much no conversation that I have had that, you know, like I've had a lot of conversations, you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. Okay, yeah, it will come up. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, the marriage of education and experience is obviously the, you know, sort of the golden goal. Um, but yeah, I'm very much self-taught, which has also forced me then to be very clear on where I get out of my lane. So... If I feel like I'm getting into some deep stuff, then you know, I'm very clear to go, oh, I'm not a counsellor. I'm not a trained counsellor here. I'll help you with your life and your performance, but this is out of my pay grade mm. and I need to refer you on. What about, who? It's when you roll back slightly, go back to school, mm. yeah. uh, what, what was it like for you at school? Oh, I'm pretty useless at school, to be honest. Like, <laughs> um, I, I, a bit of a battler, eh? 
Um, like all of my reports were um, easily distracted, which is very true. And if he actually applied himself, he could be useful. Um, <laughs> but I think part of it was honestly, mate. I was, um, I sort of, I sort of was. Um, I reckon school's hard, eh? Like when you're when you're, particularly when you're in that sort of eleven to fifteen, because I think you're just finding yourself and. You know, you're sorting out who you are socially and, you know, who your mates are and what's cool and not. And, you know, I was just sort of, sort of, I reckon it was a bit of a clouded area for me, to be honest. And, you know, thankfully I had some amazing parents that were able to navigate me through it and get, keep me on track. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I went to a school that was a big rugby school. So to be honest, play good footy, mate, we'll take care of your grades sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all changed now. Like, um, I mean, I, I can't, you know, like in my final year of high school, I, you know, I don't know how many classes I went to, um, <laughs> but it wasn't the point. <laughs> I love the honesty. Yeah, oh, like so it's just changed crazy. now. I, yeah, I wish I'd done it more, like you always look back. But also, um, you know, like I think what, what school helped me was, you know, I did all right, I did what I needed to and passed and did all that stuff, but... I reckon just the whole thing of just finding a way, like you just find a way to get things done. And I reckon that's what, you know, I think, I think sometimes we forget with, um, with school is that the qualification and the grade is the, I reckon that's the side benefit. Eh? I reckon that the key benefit is, and I watch it with my own kids is having to find an ability to think on your feet, adapt when you need to adapt and find a way to still get the job done even when you come up against things that are really, really challenging, you might not have an idea how to move forward. I really enjoyed one of your stories that you told me about uh, the dishwasher, getting your kid to do put the plates away. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got my seven-year-old at the moment, and bless him, he's been in lockdown, and he's just like yeah. having meltdowns left, right and centre. Exactly yeah. the same, mate. Um, but yeah, do you want to sort of expand on that one again? That was Yeah, I mean, what, what I sort of have had as a approach and I think I'm naturally positive so it sort of has helped in that regard is um and it's so ironic because my wife would have the tendency to be the other way and so it's quite quite an interesting combination at times because she had some real challenges in her early life and lost her mother and she's had some um she's got multiple sclerosis so like there's a real reason why the whole glass half empty can can invade her thought process and I'm the opposite I'm like nah everything will work out we'll be fine here and so my son um and so so my daughter is that you know I've always had this approach well how do you get the best out of people and get them to do stuff you want them to do want you want them to do and I don't know maybe whether it's uh I've got the ability to convince people to do stuff but I was like oh I think they do better if you you encourage them and you reward them you know, you actually, and it's not physical reward, it's, you know, affirmation or, you know, the extension of, of pride or, you know, real emotion given to them when they do great stuff. And I think that people are, are motivated best by reward. What happens if I do this and how will I feel if I do this rather than what are the consequences if I don't do it? Mm. And I think we live in a consequential world in the way we raise our kids in a lot of sense. We think our best way of motivating our kids is by painting the picture of what will happen if you don't do something but what happens if we begin to paint the picture of what happens if you do do something and what are you going to gain from this not just 
as an activity but as a person. And so with my son, I thought the way that I can, I know that he looks up to me immensely. He's in that age, he's 11. So dad's hopefully is the hero and should be if we're doing this right. Is um, <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. Uh, I wanted his reward to be my affirmation and I wanted his reward to be my pride and appreciation because I know that's important to him. I know it's important that he feels from me that he is enough. I reckon that's a, and that I'm I'm proud of him, and that he's not going to carry this burden and chip on his shoulder. Was I was never good enough, and you know I never got what I needed from dad. Because I reckon that's a, the, as a young man, I reckon that's the one thing you need more than anything growing up. You're enough, mate. You'll be fine. You got it, and you need that from your father if you have a father in your life or a father figure. And so I knew that was true about him. So I thought, oh well you know, around the dishes, I thought, if I can keep affirming my sense of pride in him and my joy in him initiating working after dinner for the family to get things tidied away, then I reckon it will be a big enough reward for him that he'll keep on doing it. And it hasn't always been consistent, i.e. every night, but I've watched, you know, like even last night we were sitting around and we were in a rush, so we just sat in the lounge and ate together not at the table, we were all over the place. And as soon as we'd finished, you just walked around the whole room and picked up everyone's plate, took it out. And, and you know, and once again reminded him of how much I love that. And I think transformation in people best occurs from the place of affirmation and belief, encouragement, and a sense of pride rather than consequences, shame, and what will happen to you if things go wrong. We talk about belonging because that I suppose this sort of fits into that slightly as well. Yeah. Um, you've sort of mentioned about Waka Papa. Is it Waka Thaka yeah. or Waka Fuka Papa? Fuka Papa. I mean, although it's yeah. sort of spelt W, but is that I'm yeah. guessing that's it's, the way it's, it's a, pronounced. It's an F. Yeah, it's a yeah. silent. So yeah, it's F. Yeah. And uh, yeah, could you just expand on that and where where that's yeah. from and stuff? Because I really enjoyed. <clears> that. So Fuka Papa is a Maori concept. So. Um, which is our indigenous people here in New Zealand. And um, basically the concept is is that though you are living today, um, you're not living in a vacuum. Uh, you're living with your ancestors behind you, which are all of the people that have contributed to you being here now. And you also have to live with the mindset of you have, you'll have a lineage coming after you. And so, one, what it does, it creates a connection with a sense of respect and honour to those that have come before you, but also it creates a responsibility around those that are coming after you. And so, you know, the sort of phrase is, in your time in the sun, which is sort of the phrase around whakapapa, um, it's your time in the sun. So what do you want to do to ensure that those coming after you inherited what you have today? And so, you know, where you probably see this in the sporting front is is with the All Blacks and the concept of legacy, which is you're very, very quickly reminded when you enter into that environment that she's got a pretty heavy responsibility on you to to be a guardian of this jersey and to ensure that it's mana, which is another Māori word, or it's honour, respect, dignity is preserved uh, because there's been a 100, close to over a 1,000 now, people who have worn this jersey and they've done that. So best you do it too. Like it's quite a heavy mm. responsibility because that jersey means so much to people here in New Zealand 
and you don't want to tarnish it. And when we have seen it tarnished either by poor performance or poor behaviour, it has an impact on our whole nation. Um, so that's probably the concept in, in, in a short sort of descriptive way. And is it something to do with the WANU as well? I quite I sort of read that from, uh, it was about, I don't know, you've probably read it. It's that legacy book by James Kerr. It was done ages ago, about six years yeah, yeah. ago. Yeah. Is, yeah. is so WANU a thing as well? Where you Fano. Safe Fano is Fano? family. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, it's really, yeah, it's no, really you're, embarrassing. You're all right. <laughs> nah, you're all right. Um, so, so Fano would be the sense of that we're, not a, we're more than a team, we're a family. And so a team would be quite transactional where a family is quite relational. So a family would say, you know, you think about your teams at work. A team would say, we have objectives that we're here to fulfill. That's the role of a team. And a family would say, well, we have relationships here that we're our responsibility is to foster those relationships to get the best out of the people. So, you know, when it, the magic happens is when teams do have a component of whānau or family at their foundation where they understand that the fostering of relationships is the key to us executing uh, what we want to do as a team. And so, um, and also the concept of Fano creates a sense of um, belonging, which is then critical for anyone on a team because once that sense of belonging is captured and then, then someone actually believes in that, then their anxiety socially is obviously massively reduced and then they're able to focus on their contribution to that team, what their role is, rather than have this constant distraction of, do I fit here? Is there a place for me here? Mm. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I know the All Blacks, it became very important to them because, you know, they needed a 20-year-old 10 to tell a 34-year-old 8, you're in the wrong place, mate, and I need more from you than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I and love so, that. yeah. So belonging creates that. I really liked as well something you said actually. Um, I think last week, and you've just done it to me now, which I've. I, this is why it's resonated is about um, making sure that you lower and there's no social anxiety there, so that you can have a voice. And and just like I said, oh, I get really embarrassed. I just said, you know, Wanu yeah. and Svanu, and yeah. and you said, oh, mate, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And that's what I really liked because it was like yeah. actually why should I know? And actually there's no problem that you're yeah. not knowing because why should you know? And actually that sense of feeling comfortable with that other person talking about anything, I think is something which is really powerful. Yeah. And I think the thing, the aspect of, um, of that becomes really critical in teams because, um, you think about it like, um, you know, we know that people are at their best if they can be authentic and you know, what we, what it happened in particularly in sports teams, which has dramatically changed, thankfully, is that we had a real hierarchical system. So your sense of belonging was maybe determined by duration in the team. So we had the old concept of the back seat of the bus and, you know, thou shall not come here without 50 <laughs> caps, you know. or you know, And what it did is that we had a lot of our young athletes and young people, and it's maybe the same in school settings, right, if you've got some rituals or hierarchies or I think the concept of hazing now is sort of been eliminated but mm. it's almost a sense of for you to belong here it's not going to be about you as a person you're gonna to have to do something different and so we know in teams if you have this real pressure to either conform to a certain standard to for belonging to happen or that belonging happens through bullying and testing and adversity and it's never going to bring out the best in people and there's never even going to cause 
authenticity. But we know that someone feeling authentic is the number one way we can help them be at their best. So not trying to be anyone else, they're just being themselves. And when you're in an environment and you figure out, well, being me is what actually everyone wants, <laughs> it's magic, right? Because yeah. then you just sit back and relax and be yourself. Mm. Whereas the anxiety around where my place is here socially and do I have to compromise me to find acceptance, I reckon that's really stressful. When was your light bulb moment that that was a that was something which was really important? Probably, you know, probably not that long ago to be honest, mate. Like, I probably reckon in the last five years it really landed where I felt like I was in a role where I was beginning to morph into the environment too much and have an approach to people and performance that lacked empathy and. I sort of that was not okay for me mm. and I think there was probably a moment there when I walked away from a role which was a pretty big role and when I can't operate in this environment um, because uh, I'm not going to be myself and they didn't hire me to be a drill sergeant and they didn't hire me to be an ex-marine who's really hard-nosed they hired me because of me and if I find out that I'm not enough in that environment, it's better that I leave rather than compromise. Is that was that did that you've written obviously about the walk in the dark and LinkedIn? Was is that sort of a moment that resonated with yeah, you? Yeah, that was just that was that was the job I talked about in there. Mm. So yeah, and, and a walk in the dark was sort of a really a reflection piece um, that I wrote around, you know, what happens when you do lose your way a bit or you know, what happens when you lose your confidence? Like, and confidence is such a fleeting thing, isn't it? Like, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years and seen some really, really uh, incredible success. But, like, I know if the Chiefs go, like, oh, and 10, when we start playing rugby, I'll be questioning myself. It's ridiculous, but <laughs> this is how we work, right? I'll be like, mm. man, if you lost it, if you got you, you no know, impact, this is useless. You know, so I think the walk in the dark was a thing like, well, I need to reset here. And I need to reset. And I was forced into reset because I got to a point where if I didn't reset properly here, I was going to um, have some real issues with how I felt about myself. And then I wouldn't have confidence going into future roles. So, yeah, Walk in the Dark was sort of a thing. It was, a, it was metaphorical, but it was actually really literal. I'd literally walk in my neighborhood at night um, <laughs> because I couldn't sleep. Um, yeah. And I was, you know, because I was thinking about one, I was disappointed in myself. But two, it was um, a significant job that was really was 90% of our financial um, you know, salary at that time. So I was facing the fact of how we're we going to pay for our bills here. So there was a little bit of anxiety and stress around that. So, But it, what it enabled me to do was just to go, well, I'm going to be me here. And if being me doesn't get the job done, then I'd be really happy to go sell our house, live somewhere in the country or into a move location and work at the local hardware store and be me. And that was sort of the moment where I went, no, nah, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to compromise who I am to fit into an environment. Mm. It's interesting. You've you've sort of mentioned about um, positive reaffirmation. Um mm with your kid as well. And mm. what I find really interesting is um, you've also mentioned about making a power into a superpower. 
Mm. Um, how, and what I was thinking is, is that how do you stimulate and growth mindset and keep on, keep on motivating yeah, yeah. them to keep on growing? Um, for me personally, my success measures are not outcome. So there is no end. Like, there's no end to me saying I've made it. Does that make sense? Like, I reckon when you're really driven by outcome um, and and outcome being the measure of success and the, the measure of competency, so i.e. our team wins or we got the job done here, I've got a certain role, then there's a tendency then to back off in your learning. And for me, it's always been like, well, I can... I can continue on the path here of really, really getting into my craft. And and I I have a goal. I want to be the best in the world at what I do. And that's not because I want roles. It's because I want to be able to be a really, really diligent in, in stewarding both the opportunities and the gifts that I have. And the only way I do that is by consistently pushing the envelope and challenging myself um, to get better. And so, you know, like over the break, one of the things that I've been really felt like I had a bit of a, I could grow in, I suppose the best way of saying it was around the role of emotion in sport. And so I've just spent like the last six weeks in the midst of doing these webinars and stuff like that, you know, during the day, um, really knuckling down and really, really getting into that subject saying, okay, so if we have this process of how we think determines how we feel, how we feel determines how we behave. Often we bypass the feel and we go think, behave. Like how you think, not really. Like thinking is an origin that determines emotion or your feelings towards a situation, which then becomes the major governor of behavior. And so, you know, I'm in this sort of experiment right now of been doing it with rugby players and trying to connect them to how they feel as a reference point for preparation and performance. So what do you want to feel as opposed to what do you want to be thinking? And I've found it to be um, quite a, a powerful tool. I'm just in the early days of experimenting with, and probably something that can, so that's an example of where I'm like, man, I got to get, I got to get better at this stuff. I love your uh, golf analogy, though, where you, you got it down from 15 to 1 and yeah. you said that you, your goal was like to have banter with the lads and birdies yeah, and yeah. biggest drive. I mean, that's yeah. I just love that. Yeah, so, I mean, like, it was so interesting because this week's been a great week for that. So I went out with my mates on Monday and shot 67. So I thought, yeah, I'm going good here. And then I went out uh, yesterday with, we have this thing at our club business house with all the sort of business owners in the community and that about you know 90 to 100 guys great I shot 80 couldn't find the club face but I reckon I didn't care about either no you know like like because I wasn't the 67 and the 80 I don't know they sort of felt the same because the score was a secondary part of the day you know the score is a number you add up at the end tells you how well you played but that's just one small part of the day. The major part of the day was how do you add up your score of how many decent conversations you had and how many people connected it with and, and how many new relationships. I played with a guy yesterday who's a local businessman who just gives away like close to a million bucks a year, mate. Like how do you measure that? <laughs> like 
You know, I hadn't met him before, and he'd been at our club. We'd both been at the same club. We'd met, but hadn't had any time. And I walked away really inspired by his, you know. So he has a company, and every one that he thinks is a gun, he makes them shareholders because he wants them to be financially independent when they retire. Wow. You know, like, what a man. Like, yeah. like that is a, that's unreal. So if I was worried about score, I don't reckon I would have got much out of that day. Mm. No, it's incredible, yeah. really, isn't it? Million dollars a year, and then just gives it all mm. back to them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's they're all shareholders, and they're all going to retire. Like he said, what the story yesterday was just loved. He said, "Oh yeah, I've got this young guy. He's a gun. I really like, and I've been working with him for the last five years, and I'm just letting him go now, and he's flourishing." He goes, "He's going to be a very wealthy man." <laughs> that must be wicked for that guy as well. Yeah, yeah. But he was just like matter of fact, he's going to be a very wealthy man. But that's what I'm here for. You know, it's a nice way so, to live, isn't it? Knowing that I might yeah. have to, I might have to come over and have a game, game of golf with him, Jeez. pitching idea. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And what things, um, like you mentioned, obviously a couple of stories with with your son and stuff. Is what what sort of things are you actually doing with some of your players right now? Mm. Which yeah, are a bit more personal. In, yeah, it's an interesting time with the playing group because you know they're they're coming out of an experience they haven't had before. Mm. Um, so, you know, what, what I find is the most interesting part of the rugby year is, um, testing days, you know, so we just had a Bronco yesterday and I would say that there's more anxiety around a Bronco than there is around a game by far. Mm. Um, because a Bronco, which for those that don't know, it's 20 meters out and back, 40 meters out and back, 60 meters out and back times five. And it's a measure of where you're at fitness-wise. So it's grueling, but it's only five minutes. Like it's Because there's no point with rugby players testing them on a 10K time because they don't run 10K, mm. um, you know, at once. So it's a really – and it's turning. you got to turn, turn, turn. Um, so there's quite a bit of news over this this week because Bowden Barrett did four minutes and 12 seconds, which broke a record, and um, you know, which is good for him and awesome. And um, but, but what – what the Bronco does, it has a number, eh? And the number doesn't have any uh, care for who you are. The number just tells you whether you've done very well or you haven't done very well. Mm. And I think it's interesting watching that process with rugby players. And like anyone listening who's in rugby, I could talk to would go, wow. They would feel that inner, like that, almost that anxiety, go, hey, it's Bronco tomorrow. And I can always <laughs> guarantee you, like, Anyone who's done them, like, oh, not the Bronco. <laughs> and it's not that it's physically so hard, it's mentally that it's so hard because you know at the end of it, you're getting judged and measured in that moment and no mm. one cares. Mm. And so, you know, with, with a game, yes, there's a win and a loss, but that's a team game. Mm. There's not as much judgment and measurement. Does that make sense? Do you, I mean, what do you yeah. say to the guys who are, like, highly anxious about doing the Bronco? Like, did, I think did it's they brilliant. It's brilliant. Like, the, the main advice is, and this is the, everything, like, pressure is a constant companion in high performance. Somewhere along the line, you can either walk towards it or walk away from it. You can either embrace it or avoid it. So at the end of the day, what there is no better opportunity to embrace pressure than by embracing something you're going to be judged over. And that judgment's going to be well known. Mm. And their judgment isn't whether the public got the numbers. No, they don't care about that. It's their teammates. Mm. So, you know, the judgment is the trainers, the coaches. 
Like everyone knows whether you've done a good time or not. So, so I think there's no better way to be able to really start to deal with your relationship with pressure. You know, and we talk about the concept of walking towards the fire or walking away from the fire, right? So if mm. pressure's a fire and you come over the hill and there's a fire, what are you going to do? Yeah, a good person would say, I better go get a hose here. I need to walk towards this and take care of it. You know, someone who doesn't have any good relationship with difficulty would say, oh, I need to just turn my back and walk the other way. I'm walking away from the fire. Mm. Um, so I think little tests like this are great opportunities to further stretch that muscle of your relationship with pressure and, and how to reframe it in a way that will help you walk through it and towards it rather than away from it. Have you got any pressure moments right now with your, your life? Um, there's always pressure moments as far as what I need to deliver. Like I feel um, there's times probably the pre- the biggest pressure for me is letting people down. Like I don't like that, but then also there's something dysfunctional about that that I've had to work through, which is the other side of it is why do I have to keep everyone happy and why do I have to have mm. everyone like me? Um, so I think that will always be the constant work on. Like for me, will always be, you can't say yes to everything. People are going to be annoyed at you because you say no. And then also doing what I do, there's the fear that thinking, oh, you just think you're, you know, you're the man, you're big Billy here and you don't want to, <laughs> you know, help, help the average man, you know, like, and then, you know, I've got good mates who I probably don't see enough and. I've got family responsibilities here that I want to take seriously. So I think that's probably the major pressure point is managing the expectations of others, which can be, man, it can be an anchor on me if I allow them to have too much power. Mm. And then being okay with saying no and then people thinking that you might be a bit of a an idiot. <laughs> um, but you're not responsible to them at the end of the day. You're responsible to a whole bunch of other people. And it's interesting because eh? you normally find the people that want your time the most don't really care about you as a person because they don't care about the impact that they'd have on your family and your friends. They just want your information and they're not the people I want to be in a relationship with anyway. Mm. I feel privileged to have you on here, mate. <laughs> after, oh, no, after that. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, this is something that I enjoy and I think it's something that's important. And, you know, my kids are at school as well and my wife's doing the shopping, so it's perfect timing. Uh, She's so not interrupting anything. <laughs> But, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the, mm. the feeling of where, you know, like, um, you know, I'll have, for example, LinkedIn's a great place, eh? So, mm. you know, there's two things that I you know, will get my goat on LinkedIn. Number one is when I've met, you connect with someone and in two minutes you've got, they've sent you an invitation around what skills they have and how they can collaborate with you. Um, I don't know if anyone has ever accepted one of those invitations. I'm like, how does that even happen? Like, I delete it straight away. I don't even know you. Why would I want to work with someone I have zero relationship with? Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is someone who doesn't want to have the time to build the relationship, they just want your IP. Mm. So I had an interview, I remember, the other week um, with a guy. I was probably actually last year. Um, and just said, hey, I'm developing this um, coaching course and you know, I'd love to run some things by you and pick your brain. And after about three minutes, I, re- I said, have you developed the course? Are you developing the course? <laughs> oh, oh I'm, I'm developing it. So have you, do you have any IP and curriculum? No. Uh, do you plan on selling this and making money? Yeah. I said, oh, sorry, I'm out, mate. <laughs> well, I just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in giving you IP to make profit without you investing in relationship. Mm. So that transactional side bugs me. 
Mm. It was interesting about what you said about Pacific Islanders and, and their values in comparison to uh, the European yeah. natives and stuff in, in New Zealand. Um, yeah, I think what well, I think, yeah, I think a really big thing that we've learned off the Pacific Island community and the Māori community is, you know, I think I share, I've shared about this a little bit in the last few weeks, but I think it's really important that we don't buy into the concept that to have one's personal purpose, um, i.e. what you want to accomplish, is just existing. You know, like if we look at it throughout history, personal purpose would be a new concept. And I don't know whether it's come through media and, you know, independence and, you know, the whole movement of you need to find your why. Um, sort of does my head in, to be honest, because we're not, we don't, we don't sit, sit alone. So the Pacific Island community say, I don't have a why, I have a, have a family that has a why and I have a role within that family, I have a tribe that has a why. Of a role within that, but you can't separate me from that. Mm. Like, why would I even think that I'd have a personal why that's separated from my family? And you think about all of history; it's always been collective wise or collective purpose or shared purpose, and it's always been something bigger than our own gain. So, why I don't know why why it's happened the last number of years. I do. I think it's a bit weird to be honest. I don't know what you think that. All of a sudden we elevate, you're the most important person in the conversation and you finding what you need in life and you you getting your why, that's everything. And if you do that, you'll be fine and you'll have a great life. Well, it assumes that we don't live in community, but our whole life's in community. And it just has been something that's exploded in the sort of pop psychology world that you know I probably don't see it having much weight when you really get into people's lives and especially those that are, you know, connected to the concept of, you know, like your school, what's your purpose? Well, if you're playing for a school team, your pur- your purpose is your role within that team. It's not, there's not, you're not separate from the team. The team holds your purpose. You just find where you fit in that and what you can contribute. No, it makes a lot of sense, really. I think uh, going back to your thought about society, you know, if you talk about I'm part of my family and that's where I it comes from, but what if you've got family that's broken up? I mean, what are divorce rates now? Fifty percent, and then and also you think about like jobs, like every all the jobs, the new jobs are in metropolises, and they could be miles away. Like I I worked in Sydney, for example, and I'm from Manchester, and then I flew and I got a job there and did a year and a half, then I flew all the way back and I, I work in London now, but my family aren't in London. So it's quite, it's, it's sort of, it, I spend less time with them and then it's less reaffirmation of, of the values mm. that maybe when you grow up, but whereas maybe, this is just a maybe, mm. is mm. the Pacific Islanders have a tribe and they all live in an area and they all mm. work together mm. for that tribe and it's very mm. close. I don't know. I think, it's, it. it's, I think it's very contextual from the fact is that even though you moved to Sydney mm. and you didn't necessarily have that connection with your tribe, you, I bet you created a new one. It's very true. They'd actually, the club that I, I played at were amazing to me. They yeah. sorted me yeah. out with a car, a job, yeah. accommodation. So that now becomes your tribe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that becomes your people for that period of time. And I think that's probably more the, the, the principle than anything else is, well, these are now my people. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to use the community I'm in to further promote my personal 
agenda or need for meaning. I'm going to fold myself into their goals, their sense of purpose, and I'm going to give myself to contribute to that. So, you know, look, you look around community, you might not have your family there, but I think everyone has a sports team or a church or a school. Or mm. There's myriads of ways we're connected. And when we're not, we know then socially we're in some trouble there because we need connection. We need to feel mm. like we belong to something. And sometimes we just got to get out of our comfort zone and make that happen. Else mm. we don't feel healthy as people. Well, mate, that's honestly, it's been fantastic to have you on here. I just, just to wrap it up though, we need some golden yeah. nuggets. Um, what would you give if, any, uh, any piece of advice for, uh, you know, any parents out there for trying to help guide mm. their own kids? What advice would you give? Yeah, I think, I think the, the biggest thing is um, remember how much they need your affirmation um, and get out of your comfort zone to do that. So, um, you know, like a 15-year-old daughter and I'm always checking in on her and I'm reminding her how much I love her and enjoy her. And she's like, oh, Dad. But I know in five years, 10 years, that'll mean everything to her. And that'll be the foundation for her life is that <clears throat> wherever she goes, she doesn't have to question the fact. You know, you think about if she goes to uni and goes across the world, she'll always know for the rest of her life there is someone in her corner that loves her and will battle for her. And so, you know, I think particularly in New Zealand, I'm not too sure what it's like as a, as a sort of mindset within the UK, but we tend at times to have this thing of the best way to develop our kids is to just have them a little bit distant so they don't get overconfident. And, you know, sort of that stoicness around our relationships. And, you know, I was very fortunate in growing up to have a family that was quite affectionate. Um, but I don't think because you didn't have that, that you can't have that now. And it can start tomorrow if people want to do that. It would be the big, and then the, the second thing is, yeah, probably you earn the right to guide people. And so, you know, like it's an old notion, but I, I, you can't escape from it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that even though you might have a phenomenal knowledge base and, you can really move people forward. And I think Wayne Smith might be the, the master of this in our rugby world is you've still got to connect with the person and you've still got to get their trust and you've, they still have to know that you care about them. And that, that care and that foundation of care and that foundation of relationship gives you the right, one, to take them into some pretty challenging places and to have some really honest conversations. Um, so to me, like if you hear a coach, so they just need, a, need more honesty I would say, well, they need more care so you can give them more honesty because they're not going to accept your honesty without care. Mm. And then I think the final thing, if we're going to do three, because I like threes, <laughs> is um, make sure you enjoy yourself. Like, life is difficult. Like, I think the very fact that the last six to eight weeks has revealed that more and more. Like, life isn't, you know, really, really easy, really, really fun. Life is difficult. Find meaning and find joy. Like I reckon we've got to think about it. Not that we're negative towards that. We just don't. Life is hard. Like there's some really challenging things in life. And so, you know, it's interesting we have this conversation because you know, sometimes a pop psychology just says avoid admitting that things are challenging and everything's going to be great, just really rosy. And I think there's an inner um, thing that goes off on us. Go, oh, that might be not quite true because I've got these situations that are occurring where that's not working. 
But what I think is powerful is when we actually acknowledge that life is difficult, but it still can be meaningful and it still can be enjoyable if you get the way you think and feel right and you get your behaviours lining up. I think you're away. Mm. That's fascinating, mate. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on the pod. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And thanks so much for your time. It's great. Yeah, very, very good. Thank you, mate.